Welcome to Real Footnotes, the podcast where we take stories from the margins and put them on the front page. This is our very first episode, so we should probably start by introducing ourselves. Although, if you listen to our little introductory episode, you've already heard all about us and you can fast forward a few times using that little 15 second advance thing. Unless you're driving, don't be an asshole. Yeah. Don't be an asshole. That's the motto of our podcast. Don't be an asshole. Anyways, I'm Brian. I've got a PhD in international history from the London School of Economics, and my research focuses on U.S. foreign policy and the Middle East. And I'm Jeff. I'm also a historian. I have a PhD from the University of Maryland, and I study the history of North American waterways. I guess I should also confess and kind of point out that we're both Canadian, eh? (laughs) But we live in the U.S., so we're cool. It's not a confession. I proudly admit my Canadianness. As do I. Right. And so Brian actually and I met in college in Canada when we were undergrads, uh, where we both studied history. And funny enough, I think we both sort of evolved, and you'll see if you agree with this, but I think we evolved to be different kinds of historians. You like sort of finding documents and assembling and putting them together, almost like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Yes. Whereas I like to talk about the metaphysics of the jigsaw puzzle. I'm more theoretical. That's the sort of history I appreciate. So we approach these topics from very different ways, but we end up coming up with something pretty cool in the end. Now, well, we hope. Yeah. Well, Real Footnotes is our attempt to kind of capture these conversations that Jeff and I have had over the years while we drank beers and shot the shit about history. So we decided to try podcasting. We're amateurs, so bear with us. We are just figuring this whole thing out and uh, let us know how we can improve. Yeah. As much as this podcast is a conversation between the two of us, it's also a conversation with you, our audience, and we want to kind of interact with you as well during this process. Right, so that's why we have all these various social media accounts that we'll give you at the end of the show. But real footnotes, how we define them at least, are sometimes literal footnotes. They're citations taken from the margins of our research or the research of our friends. Uh, But they're also an investigation to things that exist on the margins of our lives. Commonplace things that you interact with maybe on a daily basis, but that you rarely think about. Each week we'll tell you a story and then have a conversation about the story's larger significance. And sometimes we'll have a guest. So Today's story began when Brian asked me a very simple question. How do blind people in the United States distinguish between paper bills? You know, like a $1 bill, $2 bill, so forth. $2 bill? They, you don't they run exist. across those too often. <laughs> they do. But so we tried to answer that question in just a conversation in Brian's living room. But as we looked into it, our expectations just kept being confounded. So we took the question on the road. And by that, I mean to bars and Ubers. And of course, there's no reason why these strangers would have an answer to our question, (laughs) because most of them had never really considered it. But we wanted to ask anyways. Wow, that's a a good question. (laughs) That's, um, I'm completely, that's a question that's got me a little confused. I think there's some texture on the numbers, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, like you can feel a five or a twenty, but I I could be full of shit. I don't know. I just remember like Ray Charles would get paid in singles, right? So you could count it. So you knew exactly how much it was. Yeah. That's the only thing. So I can maybe. Think. So maybe the question is they don't. Our friend Jordan, however, had a very different take. A blind person has a five and a ten. How, how do, do they, they know tell them apart? Which one's which? Well, no, they tell the difference between 100 and 1. Oh, how? If they lick the 100 and they get high off the Coke residue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. So, Brian, why don't you start by telling us why this totally unexpected question was on your mind? I was back home in Canada, and I noticed that Canadian money has small bumps in the upper corner, and I realized that they were a form of Braille so that blind people could tell the bills apart. 
pretty cool. However, in the United States, apart from the engravings, which are visual, paper currency is all identical. They're the same shape, size, texture. Exactly. And in Europe, different bills are different sizes, so it's easier to tell them apart. It's not perfect by any means, but... I mean, it's pretty perfect. Yeah. But we just kept coming back to this question of how do people who can't see tell them apart in the U.S.? But then Brian asked me a follow-up question that totally changed the direction and tone of our conversation. Is American paper currency discriminatory towards the blind? So in this episode, we're going to try to answer that question. But there isn't even a consensus among the blind themselves. As it turns out, there was a court case on this exact question. And one of the most surprising discoveries was that two major organizations representing the blind found themselves on opposing sides. So after laying out the case, we'll try to make sense of the policy and philosophical questions that seem to divide blind advocates. Then, over Skype, we'll speak to Dr. Doris Fleischer, a senior lecturer at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and a historian on disability rights. Finally, we'll briefly discuss the strange attachment that Americans, or at least their representatives in Congress, seem to have to the US $1 bill. All that after our kick-ass theme song by the Boss Chiefs. Andrew Jackson is every The Cubs built in 1812. Punting season is always Real. on. Everything you know might be alive. Well, at least some of it may be. Adam Andrews the bank. Show us on the margin. Put on the front Real. You're in the margin. Thank you to the Boss Chiefs for that killer, killer theme song. We really appreciate it. Okay, so let's start off by saying that, of course, blind people use cash every day. And saying that bills are discriminatory raises all kinds of complicated questions. Uh, For example, how are we defining discrimination here? What is it going to cost to fix or rectify it? I'm on board with having public money spent to fix injustices, uh, but I also want my tax dollars spent wisely. And maybe the most important question of all is what do the blind think? Do they even want or need this? In 2002, the American Council of the Blind, or the ACB, sued the U.S. Treasury on the grounds that U.S. paper currency was discriminatory. Now, specifically, the ACB argued that American bills violated Section 504 of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act because blind people were denied, quote-unquote, meaningful access to currency. The Rehabilitation Act was modeled on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and Section 504 prohibits discrimination against the disabled in any program or agency that receives federal funding by giving the aggrieved party the right to sue. But there's a catch. The law also says that if the required changes would cause an undue burden, say they cost too much or would cause serious administrative problems, then the agency doesn't have to make them. That's a pretty serious distinction between the Rehabilitation and Civil Rights Acts. The Civil Rights Act guarantees equal access, but the Rehabilitation Act offers only meaningful, not necessarily equal access. Those were the battle lines. When the ACB finally presented their case in 2006, they argued that the visually impaired were forced to rely on the honesty of strangers to make simple transactions, like going to the grocery store. Here's a quote from Otis Stevens, one of the plaintiffs in the case. I cannot emphasize enough. (laughs) No, do it right. (laughs) right. I cannot emphasize enough the feelings of insecurity and vulnerability which I experience whenever I engage in currency transactions due to my inability to distinguish between denominations. So Stephen's position is pretty clear. Now, Jeff, what was the Treasury Department's position? Well, they argued that you can't lack access to something that you routinely use. And even if it was discrimination, the Treasury Department argued that redesigning the bill would be too expensive. It would cost about $2 billion over the next 10 years. Yeah, but that's a bit misleading. 
The $2 billion figure is the cost of a total redesign, which they do periodically anyways, you know, just to stay ahead of counterfeiters. The number I found was $228 million for new printing presses and plates. $228 million? That's still a lot of money. And that doesn't even include the cost to private industry. Would banks need all new ATMs? What about vending machines? The Treasury Department seems to have a pretty good argument. The presiding judge didn't think so and ruled for the ACB. The Treasury Department then appealed and lost in a two-to-one verdict. So they agreed to work with the ACB during the next currency redesign to accommodate the blind. In 2016, the Treasury Department announced that the next redesign would include a tactile feature. Remember those little bumps on the Canadian bills? They also decided to add high contrast numerals to help people with limited visibility. And you've already probably seen this on the new five. Incidentally, this is the same redesign that'll put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. So this seems like an all out victory for the blind. Was it? Next on Real Footnotes. This episode is brought to you by coffee. <sighs> that other Colombian product that keeps you awake. As we researched the court case, we came across something curious. An organization called the National Federation of the Blind, or the NFB, filed a petition that supported the Treasury Department, not the American Council of the Blind. Right, we made a classic mistake. We overgeneralized. We assumed that blind people were a monolithic group, and of course, they're not. To tell the NFB's story, we need to go back to 1940. A group of 16 blind activists met in Pennsylvania. They formed a new organization to represent the interests of the blind and to lobby on their behalf. Now, it's an important detail that they weren't just advocates for the blind. They were blind people themselves. The largest blind advocacy group at the time was the American Federation for the Blind. But these activists weren't interested in an organization for the blind. They wanted to build an organization of the blind. And that's how the National Federation of the Blind was <laughs> born. <laughs> no, and that's how the NFB was formed. After several political victories, including recruiting JFK as a vocal ally, by the late 50s, things started to fall apart. Some members of the NFB accused their leadership of corruption, essentially using Federation funds to line their own pockets. And they also accused them of silencing their critics in official publications. In 1959, insurgent members started the Braille Free press. And shit hit the fan at the National Conference in Miami in 1960 when the NFB's leadership expelled six state members. That action became known as the Miami Massacre, and it touched off what is now known as the Civil War among the organized blind. Now, of course, that's hyperbolic, but the rhetoric was totally out of control. Both sides threw around terms like treason and Gestapo methods. So you can see the sort of ratcheting up of this conflict. The conflict came to a head in 1961 at the convention in Kansas City. The president resigned, but it wasn't quite enough to satisfy his critics. They wanted comprehensive reforms, but they weren't getting them. So the dissidents simply walked out of the conference and literally across the street to a different hotel where they formed a competing organization, the American Council of the Blind. That's right. The very same ACB that sued the Treasury Department, it's a splinter group from the NFB. And the hostility persists to this day. I was reading a ACB published history called People of Vision that clearly blames the NFB for all the discord. But the council, for their part, also harbors a grudge. Here's a small but revealing illustration. The two organizations schedule their annual conferences at the exact same time, virtually making active membership in each impossible. Last year, the NFB conference was held in Orlando between June 30 
30th and July 5th. And the ACB conference was in Minneapolis from July 1st to July 7th. So not a lot of room to overlap. But there's no way that the NFP supported the Treasury Department just because they hated the ACB. There are real substantive disagreements that can't be reduced to mutual hatred. There are essentially two big differences between the groups. One's organizational and one's philosophical. First, they have two different visions of how the blind should lead the blind. The NFB has a kind of federal structure and state affiliates that follow the national organization's lead, whereas the ACB has a looser affiliation of state chapters in a kind of confederacy, if you will. But there's an unresolved philosophical question that really divides the council and the federation. How do you advocate for equality while simultaneously demanding special privileges? There are basically two schools of thought within the blind community about how they relate to the rest of society. Let's call one of them the accommodationist approach and the other the adaptive approach. The accommodationist approach believes that blindness is a physiological limitation and they want society to accommodate their physical disability. Here's the ACB's position from their mission statement. Quote, the American Council of the Blind strives to increase the independence, security, equality of opportunity and quality of life for all blind and visually impaired people. It is the responsibility of government at all levels to provide the infrastructure of services and equipment that will allow us to fully participate in our communities. So they're saying that the government should accommodate their disability and that there's no real distinction between civil rights for the blind and any other minority group. The adaptive approach argues that blindness is not inherently a limitation. They believe that blindness is a social construction and argue that blind people can adjust to the existing environment. That's essentially the NFB's position. And its mission statement says, quote, the National Federation of the Blind, NFB, knows that blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. Every day we raise the expectations of blind people because low expectations create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. Members of the NFB strive to spread the word that the blind are normal individuals who can compete on equal terms with their sighted peers. At a fundamental level, these two approaches offer different claims about what it means to be blind. And this has some pretty profound implications for how the blind are educated and treated by society at large. We tend to stereotype blind people. Right, a diverse group of people who happen to share one thing in common, visual impairment, behave in patterned, almost predictable ways. Blindness becomes the central characteristic around which they define their lives. But in the course of our research, we read Robert Scott's The Making of Blind Men, and he claims that Blind men are not born, they're made. Made of social assumptions that are reinforced by the institutions that work with the blind. However, Scott also argues that the idea of blindness can be remade. We just need to raise our expectations. This kind of reminds me of a podcast episode that I heard from a- One of ours? Don't advertise other podcasts. No, uh, Invisibilia, they told a story about Daniel Kish, a blind man that confounds expectations. He even rides a bike by making a series of clicks to kind of echolocate. Not kind of, exactly to echolocate. Well, Kish argued that blind people are only held back by people's low expectations, and the media sensationalism about his ability to do something that seemed just so normal and ordinary for a sighted person kind of irritated him. You know, it reminds me of Michael Gershon's phrase, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah, that's That's what the NFB is concerned with. If we think of blind people as incapable and in perpetual need of help, then they'll never be treated as equal members of our society. If you really want to help blind people, you don't need to put little bumps on bills. That's just going to reinforce the idea that the blind can't handle money unassisted. Here's a clip from C-SPAN of Mark Maurer, the past president of the NFB. He's testifying before Congress about the proposed currency redesign. Insert Maurer. 
To say that we can't manage money is to argue that we, as blind people, are helpless. This is not the case. To say that we might be victims of fraud is to argue that we can't imagine methods of protecting ourselves. Such an assertion also urges the unscrupulous to try to prey on our vulnerabilities, be they real or imagined. To describe us as helpless, vulnerable, or incompetent is to paint a picture of blind people so negative that others in society are persuaded to mistrust any ability we have. Can you trust a blind lawyer if he can't even figure out how to manage his money? How can you be sure that your lawyer will be able to handle your transactions if he can't handle his own? These are the unfortunate associations that come from the false and misleading argument that, a, that the blind cannot manage currency. Instead of worrying about currency, the NFB wants to focus on other priorities like discrimination in the workplace or at school. Consider these statistics. There are about 7.3 million people in the United States with a visual disability. That's about 2.3% of the entire population of the U.S. And of those people, on average, the visually impaired make about $15,000 less a year than their sighted counterparts. And twice as many blind people live below the poverty line. So. So couldn't that $228 million in redesign costs be better spent? What's the use of having accessible currency if on average you have far less of it? What do you think? Let us know at Real Footnotes. Up next, our interview with Dr. Doris Fleischer. But first, just a quick qualification. The audio here is a bit funky because we called her on a landline using Skype from two different cities. Uh, next time, we're going to try to sort out a better way to achieve some level of satisfactory audio quality. But that's for another day. In any case, our interview with Doris after these messages. This episode is brought to you by a reasonable accommodation for the blind. Walk sign is on. Crossing Olive Way. Doesn't take much to be helpful, does it? So thanks, Dr. Fleischer. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Uh, so let's just kind of jump right into it. What is the general focus of your research? Well, the general focus of my research has, main, has mainly been uh, disability rights. That is to say, differentiating between the way disability has been uh, commonly perceived as a, a health issue uh, and putting it in the context of civil rights. Great. Um, so can you give us a brief history of disability rights? So how are they different from civil rights and what are the legal mechanisms used to enforce them? Well, a civil right, you know what? There's only one movement, really. There's the, the movement for civil and human rights. And so, but different groups have to fight for themselves. Um, so, of course, like all the civil rights movements, the inspiration in the United States was the civil rights movement of people, uh, of, of African Americans. But, but, but it really it really goes back before that because uh, we could go back to the labor movement. Back in, say, 1935, there was an organization called the League of the Physically Handicapped. And uh, what they did is they wanted to get jobs. Uh, and handi- they're these very capable people. Now, um, a lot of the job that was or the job that was considered really, uh, I don't know how to put it, high class was to be able to, you know, take shorthand and type and do that kind of stuff. And uh, they wouldn't hire people with disabilities. Now, when I say they wouldn't hire people with disabilities, uh, we give an example of this woman who had a disability that wasn't even recognized until she was in fifth grade. <laughs> she had uh, the residual effects of polio. Nobody even noticed it in school until she was in fifth grade. So when she went to apply for a job and she was a 
crackerjack typist and, you know, she could take shorthand type and, and beat out anybody. They put PH on her record and said physically handicapped can't get a job. Now, that is evidence that it was like a civil rights issue. It, 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 she could have been black or Jewish or Hispanic or uh, whatever, whatever group that you didn't like. Uh, it's like, we don't like you. Not that you couldn't do the job. All right, so they won that case. And so the, the PH was taken off their records. But they weren't satisfied with that. They get on this flatbed truck and they want to see President Roosevelt, who's more dis disabled than many of them. And he has a job. Okay, they go to Washington, D.C., and they get to see Harry Hopkins, not President but it took the PH off all government jobs. You can't discriminate because of disability. So that's just the beginning. And then there was the fight for Section 504, which was the first federal disability law. And, uh, and how exactly did that work? Well, it worked like this. In 1973, the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, the people in AIDS. A quick aside, in this context, she's talking about congressional AIDS, not finding AIDS or autoimmune deficiency syndrome, just to clarify that for our listeners. All right, now back to the interview. AIDS, knock in, one sentence. The same kind of sentence that was used in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that you can't discriminate on the basis of disability. And uh, nobody knew. Is that true? Totally true. Nobody knew. <laughs> it, was under, uh, it was under President Nixon. He didn't know. Nobody knew. The disability community didn't know. That's amazing. Nobody knew. It's like the good guys. They put this thing in. And then when the, but when the disability community found out, they found their muscle. In any case, uh, that's how Section 504 happens. Very, very exciting. Yeah. All right. So our, our particular story focuses on a division between uh, blind advocates. And in the story, on one hand, there are those who claim that U.S. currency was discriminatory and they uh, demanded that the government accommodate their disability. But on another side of the story, others claim that blind people can simply adapt to the status quo. And they argued that special treatment tended to lower social expectations. So I was curious if this reflected broader schools of thought among those who work on disability rights? And if so, how are those factions defined? Now, when it comes to blind people, there's a whole story about we're not, we're not disabled, we're inconvenienced by our blindness. But blind people, it's, there's a division. Okay, now this goes back to, let's see, it was in 1983, there was a big division between the American Council of the Blind and the National Federation of the Blind. Now, the National Federation of the Blind... Right, really yeah, those are the two groups we were dealing with. Right. The National Federation of the Blind has a very glorious history when it comes to fighting for blind people and even fighting for disability rights. Even though it's sort of mixed, depends on who Head. It's a it's a very top you know the, the person on top runs things. It's not terribly democratic. You got a really terrific person like uh, Jacobus Tenbrook. Sorry to interrupt again, but here she's referring to Jacobus Tenbrook, one of the founders and first president of the NFB. All right, once again, back to the interview. What they would fight for is two of the main principles of the disability rights movement. One, that you had a right to, the equal rights they were entitled to. If you could, for example, if you can do a job as well well or better, I mean, you could compete on just on a regular level, not into not charity. If you can do the job better than the, the next guy, you should get the job if you're, if you're disabled. The second part of it was you fight for your own rights. It's not about charity, it's somebody else doing you a favor. Okay, the third part, the, the, the idea that there should be a coalition of all disabilities 
that they were varied. Okay. So they have a very fine history, but they do have also a history of blindness is a inconvenience, not a disability. And in 1983, there was a problem with subway gates. They've created, there was an old trains built in 1970 that did not have something that prevented you from, you know, the, the door opens in the subway, New York City subway, and you use your cane or whatever, and you see the doors open, you go in. There's also a hiatus between subway cars. So these trains built in 1970 did not have gates that, which somebody with a cane would be pushing against the gate and say, oh no, that's not an end an entrance. I got to go someplace else to get into the train. And so people were falling into the tracks, blind people. They were getting killed. I mean, and I'm not talking about people who had, who had, who had been uh, seasoned travelers. They had been using trains for many years. They knew how. Only these trains fooled them. They were getting killed. They were getting arms, legs chopped off. I mean, it was horrible. The American Council uh, of the Blind said, this is discriminating against blind people. Put up the damn gates. <laughs> the the uh, NSD, the National Federation, of the blind said, no, that'll give us a bad reputation. So this goes way back. So how do these competing interpretations of disability rights influence advocacy and education decisions, as well as how people with disabilities are perceived by the rest of society? Well, as far as education, I... I know that there is some problem that, and I don't know if the two organizations differ on this. There's a concern that the idea of inclusion, which is something that is very encouraged by disability rights activists, that blind people benefit from uh, really learning Braille because Braille is literacy. That's how you read books. Because now we have computers. Well, you don't need blind. We have talking books and stuff like. But really, Braille is is literacy, and there's something about literacy that makes a person educated. I don't, I, I don't know that there's a difference between the two organizations, uh, but there may, I don't know if there, there may be some kind of rift uh, in, with, in, regarding how, how blind people should be educated. The question of inclusion, I, most people who are involved in the movement believe that inclusion is the best way that is safe for all kinds of people, people with Down syndrome, kids with Down syndrome, or whoever, that they should be included, because in, that's the world they're going to live in. And it's good for the kids, and it's good for the disabled person, and it's good for the non-disabled person because they know the world they live in. So that actually brings us to the sort of last question we have, which is the trend toward universal design. And so inclusion could maybe be a stand-in for that. And I know this because it appears in contemporary architecture and design all over the place. Could that idea kind of help mitigate both the concerns, accommodation and expectations? If you design universally for everybody, there's no lowered social expectations, and yet you make the accommodation. Absolutely. I remember my sister in her building had a fight to get a ramp because she was in a motorized scooter. And, oh, and the people in the building said it's going to ruin the architecture. Ah, so as soon as well, she fought and finally got the ramp built, they all used the ramp. <laughs> The steps. People with baby <laughs> carriages, people with uh, shopping carts, they would use the ramp. That's the way it is. What's good for people with disabilities turns out to be good for everybody. Universal design means making the built environment appropriate for everybody. And people get older, you know. How can that not be a good thing? You know, I tell my students, we can't afford it, translation. We don't want to do it. You uh, can mm. <laughs> make it just as uh, economically, just as beautifully, and make it appropriate for everybody. And 
it makes the world a better place. And people rub shoulders with each other, so they get to know each other better, and they they appreciate. So it encourages empathy in a way too. Not I mean, empathy. There is no you and there's not us and them. There's only us. If you don't have a disability, your chances of getting something by the time you get older, uh, certainly as you age, increases, and you know you'll need that ramp. But that doesn't mean that's the end of your life. That means you just do things a different way. And we can learn from the resourcefulness of people who have to figure out other ways of doing things. And so just as we learn from people with different ethnicities and backgrounds, the more diverse a society is, the richer it is. And we want people with disabilities to be part of society. We want to learn from them. Also, they want to be able to work and be productive members of society. So yes, what you say, So I, I, I suppose when I hear empathy, what, what I'm hearing is uh, sort of the, the, the leftovers of sympathy and pity, which is the meaning. Uh, cha- charity is very nice for the giver. The person who is receiving it would prefer not to have to take charities. And uh, as I said, in a just world, in a completely just world, there would be no charity. We wouldn't need it. But in any case, yes, it, it, it connects people. It makes people understand each other. And that's where we decided to leave the story, on the note that disability rights are complicated. But we found one more footnote that we just couldn't really let go of. The court's order to redesign American currency specifically excluded the $1 bill. In fact, the $1 bill has looked basically the same since 1929. And there's a specific reason for this. Congress prohibits it. It turns out there's a recurring provision in Section 116 of the Financial Services and General Government Appropriations Act that reads, quote, None of the funds appropriated in this act or otherwise available to the Department of the Treasury or the Bureau of Engraving and Printing may be used to redesign the $1 Federal Reserve note. There are a few reasons for this. The value of each bill is obviously it's a dollar. It's not that much, which makes it unlikely to be counterfeited. So why spend the money to upgrade its security features? But that doesn't explain why Congress would specifically prohibit changing it. Well, there's also a sentimental value that people attach to the single. In fact, Time Magazine recently published the following. Quote, the $1 bill is the pride of America. Maybe it's the distinctive smell of that cotton linen blend. Maybe it's because we suspect there's a map to some secret treasure encoded in the design. Or maybe a thick wad of bills just makes us feel wealthier than we really are. So who are these people who are smelling their $1 bills? There has to be a more convincing reason. I came across an article in The Atlantic by Sandra Mims called One is the Loneliest Dollar Bill. And she argues that the vending machine industry is the main opponent to redesigning the $1 bill because they're worried that you know it's going to cost a lot of money to to update or replace machines right, to accommodate and, them. And they have a point. The National Automatic Merchandising Association, or NAMA, says there are more than 7 million vending machines in the United States that would need to be overhauled. Here's Richard Geardes, the president of NAMA, testifying before Congress. Coinage and currency are the engines that drive vending. Simply put, these costs are certain to drive many of the small owner-operators, including those operating under the Blind Enterprise programs, to bankruptcy in short order. And so uh, we, uh, and certainly will result in much higher costs to the consumers given the margins in the industry. So, changing the dollar bill would clearly hurt the vending industry. In her article, Sandra Mims quotes Thomas McMahon, a senior vice president of NAMA, who echoed Girdes, saying, quote, as long as the $1 bill is around, NAMA will work to preserve the current design of the bill. Redesign would be very costly to our operator members. 
Now, here's a nice lesson about the importance of checking footnotes or sources. We looked up McMahon's 2006 article that Mims had quoted, and this was from The Vending Times, which is the industry's trade journal. Hmm. And his position was a little bit more complicated than Mims had suggested. Vending machines often reject dollar bills, and McMahon said, quote, we'll never know how much our industry has lost in sales over the years because of Congress's refusal to do the right thing and eliminate the $1 bill. Eliminate. Right. He wanted to ditch the dollar bill and adopt a dollar coin. Here is another clip of Richard Girdes of NAMA and Representative Luis Gutierrez. Um, our point was simply if, if, if Congress considered eliminating the dollar bill and used the savings to produce dollar coins, you could reallocate that savings to buy readers. We simply offer that as one more alternative for Congress to consider. To change the dollar bill to dollar coins? So to el eliminate the dollar bill altogether and simply go with a dollar coin, which is easily distinguishable by the blind, would save the government at least $600 million a year. It would complicate our problem in trying to figure out a solution. We have a lot of fans of the dollar bill. Oh, absolutely. And we understand. So, starting with me, I'm a big fan of dollar bills. So already, you already have a bias here, the prejudice here. $600 million. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And there have been efforts to get rid of the $1 bill. In 2012, Senators John McCain and Tom Harkin introduced a bipartisan bill to replace it with $1 coins, but it failed because of Congress's inexplicable attachment to the $1 bill. Singles account for about 30% of all bills in circulation. That's something like $11.4 billion bills not included in the redesign. Until all the old bills without a tactile feature fall out of circulation, they'll be indistinguishable from all those singles. Bills typically circulate for about seven years, so the situation will eventually work itself out but it's but in the take meantime, a long time yeah. right in the meantime and who knows how long people stuff bills under their mattresses of course which really undermines the original court case in all fairness but there's a couple of things that we want to leave you guys our audience just a couple of things to chew on do you think that american paper currency is discriminatory toward the blind or are our expectations just a bit too low and why the fuck are americans so attached to their one dollar bills let us know your thoughts at Real Footnotes on Facebook and on Twitter. We want to hear from you guys. This episode is brought to you by the guy who left the tap on in the bathroom. Turn it off, fucker. We're coming to the end of the podcast, so let's just take a moment to recap some of the big lessons that we learned in the course of doing this. And the first is that the blind community is far more divided than we assumed. They're not a monolithic group and there are serious philosophical divisions among blind advocates. The second is that the courts have ruled that US currency is discriminatory in its current form, and that effectively takes a side within that philosophical debate. And the third lesson that we learned is that by excluding the $1 bill from any redesign, you undermine the court's ruling and make it more difficult for blind people to have meaningful access to currency. Thanks for listening to our very first episode. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and we hope even despite that charade uh, that you'll hope, we hope that you'll check out the next one. Yeah, we should also mention that we reached out to the ACB and NFB for input on this episode, and we've been trying to arrange an interview with the ACB, but it hasn't quite worked out, at least not yet. But we'll definitely update this episode and include the interview if we're able to speak with them, or we can append it, we can either append it or add it to a mini-sode, I suppose. Yeah, we'll be putting out mini-episodes in between each of these episodes. Right. 
website just to announce the next episode's topic and maybe have a little bit of fun. Yeah, and to also engage with you guys if you have any questions about things that we were working on. We, we want to, this is a dialogue. We want you guys involved as well. But in any case, we will really want to thank Dr. Doris Fleischer for taking the time to speak to us. And if you're interested, check out her book, The Disability Rights Movement, From Charity to Confrontation. In fact, we'll actually post some of our sources on our website so that our listeners can check them out for themselves if they're interested. Speaking of which, check out our website, which is www.realfootnotes.com and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Real Footnotes. Rate and review us on iTunes. Apparently that's important. Uh, And your feedback will help us improve the quality of the podcast. And we'll see you next time in the margins.